a definite chief AIM greater than the best rose bush, after all, is not that which has the fewest thorns but that which bears the finest roses. Greater than greater than Henry Van Dyke. You can do it if you believe you can. You are at the beginning of a course of philosophy which, for the first time in the history of the world, has been organized from the known factors which have been used and must always be used by successful people. Literary style has been completely subordinated for the sake of stating the principles and laws included in this course in such a manner that they may be quickly and easily assimilated by people in every walk of life. Some of the principles described in the course are familiar to all who will read the course. Others are here stated for the first time. It should be kept in mind, from the first lesson to the last, that the value of the philosophy lies entirely in the thought stimuli it will produce in the mind of the student, and not merely in the lessons themselves. Stated in another way, this course is intended as a mind stimulant that will cause the student to organize and direct to a definite end the forces of his or her mind, thus harnessing the stupendous power which most people waste in spasmodic, purposeless thought. Singleness of purpose is essential for success, no matter what may be one's idea of the definition of success. Yet singleness of purpose is a quality which may, and generally does, call for thought on many allied subjects. This author traveled a long distance to watch Jack Dempsey train for an oncoming battle. It was observed that he did not rely entirely upon one form of exercise, but resorted to many forms. The punching bag helped him develop one set of muscles, and also trained his eye to be quick. The dumbbells trained still another set of muscles. Running developed the muscles of his legs and hips. A well-balanced food ration supplied the materials needed for building muscle without fat. Proper sleep, relaxation and rest habits provided still other qualities which he must have in order to win. The student of this course is, or should be, engaged in the business of training for success in the battle of life. To win there are many factors which must have attention. A well-organized, alert and energetic mind is produced by various and sundry stimuli, all of which are plainly described in these lessons. It should be remembered, however, that the mind requires, for its development, a variety of exercise, just as the physical body, to be properly developed, calls for many forms of systematic exercise. Horses are trained to certain gates by trainers who hurdle jump them over handicaps which cause them to develop the desired steps, through habit and repetition. The human mind must be trained in a similar manner, by a variety of thought-inspiring stimuli. You will observe, before you have gone very far into this philosophy, that the reading of these lessons will superinduce a flow of thoughts covering a wide range of subjects. For this reason the student should read the course with a notebook and pencil at hand, and follow the practice of recording these thoughts or ideas as they come into the mind. By following this suggestion the student will have a collection of ideas, by the time the course has been read two or three times, sufficient to transform his or her entire life plan. By following this practice it will be noticed, very soon, that the mind has become like a magnet in that it will attract useful ideas right out of the thin air, to use the words of a noted scientist who has experimented with this principle for a great number of years. You will do yourself a great injustice if you undertake this course with even a remote feeling that you do not stand in need of more knowledge than you now possess. In truth, no man knows enough about any worthwhile subject to entitle him to feel that he has the last word on that subject. In the long, hard task of trying to wipe out some of my own ignorance and make way for some of the useful truths of life, I have often seen, in my imagination, the great marker who stands at the gateway entrance of life and writes poor fool on the brow of those who believe they are wise, and poor sinner on the brow of those who believe they are saints. Which, translated into workaday language, means that none of us know very much, and by the very nature of our being can never know as much as we need to know in order to live sanely and enjoy life while we live. 
Humility is a forerunner of success. Until we become humble in our own hearts we are not apt to profit greatly by the experiences and thoughts of others. Sounds like a preachment on morality? Well, what if it does? Even preachments, as dry and lacking in interest as they generally are, may be beneficial if they serve to reflect the shadow of our real selves so we may get an approximate idea of our smallness and superficiality. Success in life is largely predicated upon our knowing man. The best place to study the man-animal is in your own mind, by taking as accurate an inventory as possible of yourself. When you know yourself thoroughly, if you ever do, you will also know much about others. To know others, not as they seem to be, but as they really are, study them through. 1. The posture of the body, and the way they walk. 2. The tone of the voice, its quality, pitch, volume. 3. The eyes, whether shifty or direct. 4. The use of words, their trend, nature and quality. Through these open windows you may literally walk right into a man's soul and take a look at the real man. Going a step further, if you would know men study them. When angry. When in love. When money is involved. When eating, alone, and unobserved, as they be. Leave when writing. When in trouble. When joyful and triumphant. When downcast and defeated. When facing catastrophe of a hazardous nature when trying to make a good impression on others when informed of another's misfortune. When informed of another's good fortune. When losing in any sort of a game of sport. When winning at sport. When alone, in a meditative mood. Before you can know any man, as he really is, you must observe him in all the foregoing moods, and perhaps more, which is practically the equivalent of saying that you have no right to judge others at sight. Appearances count, there can be no doubt of that, but appearances are often deceiving. This course has been so designed that the student who masters it may take inventory of himself and of others by other than snap judgment methods. The student who masters this philosophy will be able to look through the outer crust of personal adornment, clothes, so-called culture and the like, and down deep into the heart of all about him. This is a very broad promise. It would not have been made if the author of this philosophy had not known, from years of experimentation and analysis, that the promise can be met. Some who have examined the manuscripts of this course have asked why it was not called a course in master salesmanship. The answer is that the word salesmanship is commonly associated with the marketing of goods or services, and it would, therefore, narrow down and circumscribe the real nature of the course. It is true that this is a course in master salesmanship, providing one takes it deeper than the average view of the meaning of salesmanship. This philosophy is intended to enable those who master it to sell their way through life successfully, with the minimum amount of resistance and friction. Such a course, therefore, must help the student organize and make use of much truth, which is overlooked by the majority of people who go through life as mediocres. Not all people are so constituted that they wish to know the truth about all matters vitally affecting life. One of the great surprises the author of this course has met with, in connection with his research activities, is that so few people are willing to hear the truth when it shows up their own weaknesses. We prefer illusions to realities. New truths, if accepted at all, are taken with the proverbial grain of salt. Some of us demand more than a mere pinch of salt, we demand enough to pickle new ideas so they become useless. For these reasons the introductory lesson of this course, and this lesson as well, cover subjects intended to pave the way for new ideas so those ideas will not be too severe a shock to the mind of the student. The thought the author wishes to get across has been quite plainly stated by the editor of the American magazine, in an editorial which appeared in a recent issue, in the following words. On a recent rainy night, Carl Lohman, the reindeer king of Alaska, told me a true story. It has stuck in my crop ever since. 
And now I am going to pass it along. A certain Greenland Eskimo, said Lohman, was taken on one of the American North Polar expeditions a number of years ago. Later, as a reward for faithful service, he was brought to New York City for a short visit. At all the miracles of sight and sound he was filled with a most amazed wonder. When he returned to his native village he told stories of buildings that rose into the very face of the sky, of streetcars, which he described as houses that moved along the trail, with people living in them as they moved, of mammoth bridges, artificial lights, and all the other dazzling concomitants of the metropolis. His people looked at him coldly and walked away. And forthwith throughout the whole village he was dubbed Sagluk, meaning the liar, and this name he carried in shame to his grave. Long before his death his original name was entirely forgotten. When Dude Rasmussen made his trip from Greenland to Alaska he was accompanied by a Greenland Eskimo named Mytek, Eider Duck. Mytek visited Copenhagen and New York, where he saw many things for the first time and was greatly impressed. Later, upon his return to Greenland, he recalled the tragedy of Sagluk, and decided that it would not be wise to tell the truth. Instead, he would narrate stories that his people could grasp, and thus save his reputation. So he told them how he and Dr. Rasmussen maintained a kayak on the banks of a great river, the Hudson, and how, each morning, they paddled out for their hunting. Ducks, geese and seals were to be had aplenty, and they enjoyed the visit immensely. Mytek, in the eyes of his countrymen, is a very honest man. His neighbors treat him with rare respect. The road of the truth-teller has always been rocky. Socrates sipping the hemlock, Christ crucified, Stephen stoned, Bruno burned at the stake, Galileo terrified into retraction of his starry truths, forever could one follow that bloodly trail through the pages. Of history. Something in human nature makes us resent the impact of new ideas. We hate to be disturbed in the beliefs and prejudices that have been handed down with the family furniture. At maturity too many of us go into hibernation, and live off the fat of ancient fetishes. If a new idea invades our, then we rise up snarling from our winter sleep. The Eskimos, at least, had some excuse they were unable to visualize the startling pictures drawn by Sagluk. Their simple lives had been too long circumscribed by the brooding Arctic night. But there is no adequate reason why the average man should ever close his mind to fresh slants on life. He does, just the same. Nothing is more tragic, or more common, than mental inertia. For every 10 men who are physically lazy there are 10,000 with stagnant minds. And stagnant minds are the breeding places of fear. An old farmer up in Vermont always used to wind up his prayers with this plea, Oh, God, give me an open mind. If more people followed his example they might escape being hamstrung by prejudices. And what a pleasant place to live in the world would be. Every person should make it his business to gather new ideas from sources other than the environment in which he daily lives and works. The mind becomes withered, stagnant, narrow and closed unless it searches for new ideas. The farmer should come to the city quite often, and walk among the strange faces and the tall buildings. He will go back to his farm, his mind refreshed, with more courage and greater enthusiasm. The city man should take a trip to the country. Every so often and freshen his mind with sights new and different from those associated with his daily labors. Everyone needs a change of mental environment at regular periods, the same as a change and variety of food are essential. The mind becomes more alert, more elastic and more ready to work with speed and accuracy after it has been bathed in new ideas, outside of one's own field of daily labor. As a student of this course you will temporarily lay aside the set of ideas with which you perform your daily labors, and enter a field of entirely new, and in some instances, heretofore unheard of, ideas. Splendid! You will come out, 
at the other end of this course, with a new stock of ideas which will make you more efficient, more enthusiastic and more courageous, no matter in what sort of work you may be engaged. Do not be afraid of new ideas. They may mean to you the difference between success and failure. Some of the ideas introduced in this course will require no further explanation or proof of their soundness because they are familiar to practically everyone. Other ideas here introduced are new, and for that very reason many students of this philosophy may hesitate to accept them as sound. Every principle described in this course has been thoroughly tested by the author, and the majority of the principles covered have been tested by scores of scientists and others who were quite capable of distinguishing between the merely theoretic and the practical. For these reasons all principles here covered are known to be workable in the exact manner claimed for them. However, no student of this course is asked to accept any statement made in these lessons without having first satisfied himself or herself, by tests, experiments and analysis, that the statement is sound. The major evil the student is requested to avoid is that of forming opinions without definite facts as the basis, which brings to mind Herbert Spencer's famous admonition in these words. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all argument, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. This principle is contempt prior to examination. It may be well to bear this principle in mind when you come to study the law of the mastermind described in these lessons. This law embodies an entirely new principle of mind operation, and, for this reason alone, it will be difficult for many students to accept it as sound until after they have experimented with it. When the fact is considered, however, that the law of the mastermind is believed to be the real basis of most of the achievements of those who are considered geniuses, this law takes on an aspect which calls for more than snap judgment opinions. It is believed by many scientific men whose opinions on the subject have been given the author of this philosophy, that the law of the mastermind is the basis of practically all of the more important achievements resulting from group or cooperative effort. The late Dr. Alexander Graham Bell said he believed the law of the mastermind, as it has been described in this philosophy, was not only sound, but that all the higher institutions of learning would soon be teaching that law as a part of their courses in psychology. Charles P. Steinmetz said he had experimented with the law and had arrived at the same conclusion as that stated in these lessons, long before he talked to the author of the Law of Success philosophy about the subject. Luther Burbank and John Burroughs made similar statements One, Edison was never interrogated on the subject, but other statements of his indicate that he would endorse the law as being a possibility, if not in fact a reality. Dr. Elmer Gates endorsed the law, in a conversation with this author more than 15 years ago. Dr. Gates is a scientist of the highest order, ranking along with Steinmetz, Edison, and Bell. The author of this philosophy has talked to scores of intelligent businessmen who, while they were not scientists, admitted they believed in the soundness of the law of the mastermind. It is hardly excusable, therefore, for men of less ability to judge such matters, to form opinions as to this law, without serious, systematic investigation. Let me lay before you a brief outline of what this lesson is and what it is intended to do for you. Having prepared myself for the practice of law I will offer this introduction as a statement of my case. The evidence with which to back up my case will be presented in the 16 lessons of which the course is composed. The facts out of which this course has been prepared have been gathered through more than 25 years of business and professional experience, and my only explanation of the rather free use of the personal pronoun throughout the course is that I am writing from first-hand experience. Before this reading course on the law of success was published the manuscripts were submitted to two prominent universities with a request that they be read by competent professors with the object of eliminating or correcting any statements that appeared to be unsound, from an economic viewpoint. This request was complied with and then the manuscripts were carefully examined, 
with the result that not a single change was made with the exception of one or two slight changes in wording. One of the professors who examined the Manu. Scripps expressed himself, in part, as follows, It is a tragedy that every boy and girl who enters high school is not efficiently drilled on the 15 major parts of your reading course on the law of success. It is regrettable that the great university with which I am connected, and every other university, does not include your course as a part of its curriculum. Inasmuch as this reading course is intended as a map or blueprint that will guide you in the attainment of that coveted goal called success, may it not be well here to define success? Success is the development of the power with which to get whatever one wants in life without interfering with the rights of others. I would lay particular stress upon the word power because it is inseparably related to success. We are living in a world and during an age of intense competition, and the law of the survival of the fittest is everywhere in evidence. Because of these facts all who would enjoy enduring success must go about its attainment through the use of power. And what is power? Power is organized energy or effort. This course is properly called the law of success for the reason that it teaches how one may organize facts and knowledge and the faculties, of one's mind into a unit of power. This course brings you a definite promise, namely, that through its mastery and application you can get whatever you want, with but two qualifying words, within reason. This qualification takes into consideration your education, your wisdom or your lack of it, your physical endurance, your temperament, and all of the other qualities mentioned in the 16 lessons of this course as being the factors most essential in the attainment of success. Without a single exception those who have attained unusual success have done so, either consciously or unconsciously, through the aid of all or a portion of the 15 major factors of which this course is compiled. If you doubt this statement, then master these 16 lessons so you can go about the analysis with reasonable accuracy and analyze such men as Carnegie, Rockefeller, Hill, Harriman, Ford and others of this type who have accumulated great fortunes of material wealth, and you will see that they understood and applied the principle of organized effort which runs, like a golden cord of indisputable evidence, throughout this course. Nearly 20 years ago I interviewed Mr. Carnegie for the purpose of writing a story about him. During the interview I asked him to what he attributed his success. With a merry little twinkle in his eyes he said, Young man, before I answer your question will you please define your term success? After waiting until he saw that I was somewhat embarrassed by his request he continued, By success you have reference to my money, have you not? I assured him that money was the term by which most people measured success, and he then said, Oh, well, if you wish to know how I got my money, if that is what you call success, I will answer your question by saying that we have a mastermind here in our business, and that mind is made up of more than a score of men who constitute my personal staff of superintendents and managers and accountants and chemists and other necessary types. No one person in this group is the mastermind of which I speak, but the sum total of the minds in the group, coordinated, organized and directed to a definite end in a spirit of harmonious cooperation is the power that got my money for me. No two minds in the group are exactly alike, but each man in the group does the thing that he is supposed to do and he does it better than any other person in the world could do it. Then and there the seed out of which this course has been developed was sown in my mind, but that seed did not take root or germinate until later. This interview marked the beginning of years of research which led, finally, to the discovery of the principle of psychology described in the introductory lesson as the mastermind. I heard all that Mr. Carnegie said, but it took the knowledge gained from many years of subsequent contact with the business world to enable me to assimilate that which he said and clearly grasp and understand the principle back of it, which was nothing more nor less than the principle of organized effort upon which this course on the law of success is founded. Carnegie's group of men constituted a mastermind and that mind was so well organized, so well coordinated, so powerful, 
that it could have accumulated millions of dollars for Mr. Carnegie in practically any sort of endeavor of a commercial or industrial nature. The steel business in which that mine was engaged was but an incident in connection with the accumulation of the Carnegie wealth. The same wealth could have been accumulated had the mastermind been directed in the coal business or the banking business or the grocery business, for the reason that back of the mind was power, that sort of power which you may have when you shall have organized the faculties of your own mind and allied yourself with other well-organized minds for the attainment of a definite chief aim in life. A careful checkup with several of Mr. Carnegie's former business associates, which was made after this course was begun, proves conclusively not only that there is such a law as that which has been called the mastermind, but that this law was the chief source of Mr. Carnegie's success. Perhaps no man was ever associated with Mr. Carnegie who knew him better than did Mr. C. M. Schwab. In the following words Mr. Schwab has very accurately described that subtle something in Mr. Carnegie's personality which enabled him to rise to such stupendous heights. I never knew a man with so much imagination, lively intelligence and instinctive comprehension. You sense that he probed your thoughts and took stock of everything that you had ever done or might do. He seemed to catch at your next word before it was spoken. The play of his mind was dazzling and his habit of close observation gave him a store of knowledge about innumerable matters. But his outstanding quality, from so rich an endowment, was the power of inspiring other men. Confidence radiated from him. You might be doubtful about something and discuss the matter with Mr. Carnegie. In a flash he would make you see that it was right and then absolutely believe it, or he might settle your doubts by pointing out its weakness. This quality of attracting others, then spurring them on, arose from his own strength. The results of his leadership were remarkable. Never before in history of industry, I imagine, was there a man who, without understanding his business in its working details, making no pretense of technical knowledge concerning steel or engineering, was yet able to build up such an enterprise. Mr. Carnegie's ability to inspire men rested on something deeper than any faculty of judgment. In the last sentence Mr. Schwab has conveyed a thought which corroborates the theory of the master mind to which the author of this course has attributed the chief source of Mr. Carnegie's power. Mr. Schwab has also confirmed the statement that Mr. Carnegie could have succeeded as well in any other business as he did in the steel business. It is obvious that his success was due to his understanding of his own mind and the minds of other men, and not to mere knowledge of the steel business itself. This thought is most consoling to those who have not yet attained outstanding success, for it shows that success is solely a matter of correctly applying laws and principles which are available to all, and these laws, let us not forget, are fully described in the 16 lessons of this course. Mr. Carnegie learned how to apply the law of the master mind. This enabled him to organize the faculties of his own mind and the faculties of other men's minds, and coordinate the whole behind a definite chief AIM. Every strategist, whether in business or war or in industry or other callings, understands the value of organized, coordinated effort. Every military strategist understands the value of sowing seeds of dissension in the ranks of the opposing forces, because this breaks up the power of coordination back of the opposition. During the late World War much was heard about the effects of propaganda, and it seems not an exaggeration to say that the disorganizing forces of propaganda were much more destructive than were all the guns and explosives used in the war. One of the most important turning points of the World War came when the Allied armies were placed under the direction of the French general, Foch. There are well-informed military men who claim that this was the move which spelled doom for the opposing armies. Any modern railroad bridge is an excellent example of the value of organized effort, because it demonstrates quite simply and clearly how thousands of tons of weight may be borne by a comparatively small group of steel bars and beams so arranged that the weight is spread over the entire group. There was a man who had seven sons who were always quarreling among themselves. 
One day he called them together and informed them that he wished to demonstrate just what their lack of cooperative effort meant. He had prepared a bundle of seven sticks which he had carefully tied together. One by one he asked his sons to take the bundle and break it. Each son tried, but in vain. Then he cut the strings and handed one of the sticks to each of his sons and asked him to break it over his knee. After the sticks had all been broken, with ease, he said. When you boys work together in a spirit of harmony you resemble the bundle of sticks, and no one can defeat you, but when you quarrel among yourselves anyone can defeat you one at a time. There is a worthwhile lesson in this story of the man and his seven quarrelsome sons, and it may be applied to the people of a community, the employees and employers in a given place of employment, or to the state and nation in which we live. Organized effort may be made a power, but it may also be a dangerous power unless guided with intelligence, which is the chief reason why the 16th lesson of this course is devoted largely to describing how to direct the power of organized effort so that it will lead to success, that sort of success which is founded upon truth and justice and fairness that lead to ultimate happiness. One of the outstanding tragedies of this age of struggle and money madness is the fact that so few people are engaged in the effort which they like best. One of the objects of this course is to help each student find his or her particular niche in the world's work, where both material prosperity and happiness in abundance may be found. For this purpose a character analysis chart accompanies the 16th lesson. This chart is designed to help the student take inventory of himself and find out what latent ability and hidden forces lie sleeping within him. This entire course is intended as a stimulus with which to enable you to see yourself and your hidden forces as they are, and to awaken in you the ambition and the vision and the determination to cause you to go forth and claim that which is rightfully yours. Less than 30 years ago a man was working in the same shop with Henry Ford, doing practically the same sort of work that he was doing. It has been said that this man was really a more competent workman, in that particular sort of work, than Ford. Today this man is still engaged in the same sort of work, at wages of less than $100 a week, while Mr. Ford is the world's richest man. What outstanding difference is there between these two men which has so widely separated them in terms of material wealth? Just this, Ford understood and applied the principle of organized effort while the other man did not. In the little city of Shelby, Ohio, as these lines are being written for the first time in the history of the world this principle of organized effort is being applied for the purpose of bringing about a closer alliance between the churches and the business houses of a community. The clergyman and businessman have formed an alliance, with the result that practically every church in the city is squarely back of every businessman, and every businessman is squarely back of every church. The effect has been the strengthening of the churches and the business houses to such an extent that it has been said that it would be practically impossible for any individual member of either class to fail in his calling. The others who belong to the alliance will permit no such failures. Here is an example of what may happen when groups of men form an alliance for the purpose of placing the combined power of the group back of each individual unit. The alliance has brought both material and moral advantages to the city of Shelby such as are enjoyed by but few other cities of its size in America. The plan has worked so effectively and so satisfactorily that a movement is now underway to extend it into other cities throughout America. That you may gain a still more concrete vision of just how this principle of organized effort can be made powerful, stop for a moment and allow your imagination to draw a picture of what would likely be the result if every church and every newspaper and every Rotary Club and every Kiwanis Club and every advertising club and every woman's club and every other civic organization of a similar nature, in your city, or in any other city in the United States, should form an alliance for the purpose of pulling their power and using it for the benefit of all members of these organizations. The results which might easily be attained by such an alliance stagger the imagination I. There are three outstanding powers in the world of organized effort. They are, the churches, the schools and the newspapers.
Think what might easily happen if these three great powers and molders of public opinion should ally themselves together for the purpose of bringing about any needed change in human conduct. They could, in a single generation, so modify the present standard of business ethics, for example, that it would practically be business suicide for anyone to try to transact business under any standard except that of the golden rule. Such an alliance could be made to produce sufficient influence to change, in a single generation, the business, social and moral tendencies of the entire civilized world. Such an alliance would have sufficient power to force upon the minds of the oncoming generations any ideals desired. Power is organized effort, as has already been stated. Success is based upon power. That you may have a clear conception of what is meant by the term organized effort I have made use of the foregoing illustrations, and for the sake of further emphasis I am going to repeat the statement that the accumulation of great wealth and the attainment of any high station in life such as constitute what we ordinarily call success, are based upon the vision to comprehend and the ability to assimilate and apply the major principles of the 16 lessons of this course. This course is in complete harmony with the principles of economics and the principles of applied psychology. You will observe that those lessons, which depend, for their practical application, upon knowledge of psychology, have been supplemented with sufficient explanation of the psychological principles involved to render the lessons easily understood. Before the manuscripts for this course went to the publisher they were submitted to some of the foremost bankers and businessmen of America, that they might be examined, analyzed and criticized by the most practical type of mind. One of the best-known bankers in New York City returned the manuscripts with the following comment. I hold a master's degree from Yale, but I would willingly exchange all that this degree has brought me in return for what your course on the law of success would have brought me had I been afforded the privy. Ledge of making it a part of my training while I was studying at Yale. My wife and daughter have also read the manuscripts, and my wife has named your course the master keyboard of life because she believes that all who understand how to apply it may play a perfect symphony in their respective callings, just as a pianist may play any tune when once the keyboard of the piano and the fundamentals of music have been mastered. No two people on earth are exactly alike, and for this reason no two people would be expected to attain from this course the same viewpoint. Each student should read the course, understand it and then appropriate from its contents whatever he or she needs to develop a well-rounded personality. Before this appropriation can be properly made it will be necessary for the student to analyze himself, through the use of the questionnaire that comes with the 16th lesson of the course, for the purpose of finding out what his deficiencies may be. This questionnaire should not be filled out until the student thoroughly masters the contents of the entire course, for he will then be in position to answer the questions with more accuracy and understanding of himself. Through the aid of this questionnaire an experienced character analyst can take inventory of one's faculties as easily and as accurately as a merchant can inventory the goods on his shelves. This course has been compiled for the purpose of helping the student find out what are his or her natural talents, and for the purpose of helping organize, coordinate and put into use the knowledge gained from experience. For more than 20 years I have been gathering, classifying and organizing the material that has gone into the course. During the past 14 years I have analyzed more than 16,000 men and women, and all of the vital facts gathered from these analyzes have been carefully organized and woven into this course. These analyzes brought out many interesting facts which have helped to make this course practical and usable. For example, it was discovered that 95% of all who were analyzed were failures, and but 5% were successes. By the term failure is meant that they had failed to find happiness and the ordinary necessities of life without struggle that was almost unbearable. Perhaps this is about the proportion of successes and failures that might be found if all the people of the world were accurately analyzed. The struggle for a mere existence is terrific among people who have not learned how to organize and direct their natural talents, 
while the attainment of those necessities, as well as the acquiring of many of the luxuries, is comparatively simple among those who have mastered the principle of organized effort. One of the most startling facts brought to light by those 16,000 analyzes was the discovery that the 95% who were classed as failures were in that class because they had no definite chief aim in life, while the 5% constituting the successful ones not only had purposes that were definite, but they had, also, definite plans for the attainment of their purposes. Another important fact disclosed by these analyses was that the 95% constituting the failures were engaged in work which they did not like, while the 5% constituting the successful ones were doing that which they liked best. It is doubtful whether a person could be a failure while engaged in work which he liked best. Another vital fact learned from the analyses was that all of the 5% who were succeeding had formed the habit of systematic saving of money, while the 95% who were failures saved nothing. This is worthy of serious thought. One of the chief objects of this course is to aid the student in performing his or her chosen work in such a manner that it will yield the greatest returns in both money and happiness. Greater than no person is educated who is not at least a speaking acquaintance with the law of compensation, as it is described by Emerson. Greater than no position in life can be secure, and no achievement can be permanent unless built upon truth and justice.